0: We'll be uh, spending most of our time in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. Um, and, you know, as is typical of Jesus' parables kind of rattle our cages just a little bit, and I want to pay attention to uh, especially his story about the, uh, the master and the servant. Um, the context here is important. Uh, in the course of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, you'll see that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. So, in the storytelling of Luke, that's a kind of a pivotal moment. Where um, his focus and his attention now turns from, uh, more or less, from his ministry in the north and will start to work towards its consummation in the events in the final week of Jesus' life here. And, um, and so, after he sets his face, his teaching focuses, his ministry sharpens, and he is advancing the kingdom as he heads towards its, uh, its consummation in, in Jerusalem. And so he is going to be demonstrating that passion and that commitment along the way by the things that he does in his ministry, by his teaching, and here the focus this morning on the training of his disciples for leadership. So along the way, he's going to be sharpening the contrast between his Jesus kingdom movement and the alternatives that are on visible display uh, especially in the Pharisees, from a leadership perspective, and then just in the human nature traits that come out in uh, in the uh, in the actions that he inspires. So as we head into chapter 17 here, the focus is going to be on teaching his disciples. In fact, even more so, his apostles. You'll see in verse five, um, apostles isn't used too many times of the group of twelve. Um, here it's emphasized. And this, as it were, a contrast to some of the sharp words that he had given to the Pharisees just a couple of verses earlier. The Pharisees aren't exact, they're a kind of leader uh, in Israel. Um, in Israel, you have uh, kind of a diversity of different centers of leadership. You have, of course, the priests uh, and the Levites and the scribes who are based in uh, Jerusalem. The priests have oversight of the ministry of the temple. And they have a certain kind of leadership, and they're looked to with a certain kind of gravitas. They're also highly problematic because they have a too close relationship with Rome, who kind of holds the power in Israel at this time. Um, Oftentimes you'll hear of Jesus speaking to the Sadducees. The Sadducees are priests. Not all priests are Sadducees, but all Sadducees are priests. And Jesus doesn't really have a lot of time for them. You'll notice that he doesn't talk to him too much, and when he does, it's pretty sharp. The Pharisees are Bible teachers. And they're more closely uh, rooted in the village life of Israel. Um, Pharisees will often themselves have disciples. And uh, they're not some formal training. It's just that you become known for being a teacher and being good at that. And the disciples in a certain way, Jesus and the disciples have a lot more in common with the Pharisees, and that's why they argue more, right? Because they're closer together, right? Your worst arguments are with your family, right? Um, You have a lot in common, and so you're debating, you're testing, you're pushing, you're pulling. And the Pharisees demonstrate in their stewardship uh, some false notes that... Uh, that cause them to be blind to the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus often will, in his times with his disciples, caution them against certain character traits that are visible in the Pharisees. And I'd hasten to add, the disciples share those traits, We share those traits. So Jesus isn't trying to simply cast stones at bad people. He's saying we all are susceptible to certain kinds of behavior that will blind us to the kingdom of heaven if we're not aware of them. And he's saying if you're going to be my follower, I don't want you to demonstrate or to inhabit those character traits. And the Pharisees and the disciples, rather, are sometimes caught in in motives that they themselves don't even recognize. I think we can all relate to that. We don't even often know why we're doing something until it's kind of called out by somebody else. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. Another way of translating that, that verb is add to our faith. We want more of this. And that could have been a very innocent request. I wonder if there wasn't maybe a false note in there. Um, we, we're leaders. We want more of what we need to be leaders. We want more of something so that we can be better at it. And Jesus, in a certain way, I, he, he kind of dismisses the question a little bit. I'm not entirely sure he he was trying to focus on, you know, trees and seas. You know, imagine it saying like this, Lord, we want more of something. It's like you already have enough of it. You only need a little tiny grain, okay? So that's not the point. That's not the issue here. Do Do you see what I'm saying? He wasn't necessarily drawing attention to, okay. I want you to have. If you don't have this kind of faith, then you're, you just don't have enough. So do better. I don't think that's kind of what he was trying to say. He's like, yeah, you got you got everything you need already, okay. You're you're. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's the kind of faith you have, and it's the actual. It's the focal point, is not you having the you having a certain amount of faith, but rather it's the person that you're putting your faith in. And so Jesus goes on to tell the story, and I think Luke is intentional in bringing these two stories together here. He's saying, "Let me describe something to you." Um, he's going to describe. I'll use the Greek words because they're slightly less challenging to us right now. He's going to talk about being a doulos. All right, the English translations we have today kind of soften it a little bit to say servant, but the older translations will use the, the 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 hard word, which is slave. All right, so I'm going to just try to not to make a decision on that yet. I'm just going to say doulos, which is the Greek word for slave and servant. We sit uncomfortably in our culture with this word and this contrast of master and doulos, curios, lord. Uh, the Bible is not uncomfortable with this word, um, but we are, it conjures for us, particularly the, the translation slave, images of chattel slavery and, and its inexcusable abuses and the, the, the horrors that ensued in our culture the effects of which we are of course still grappling with today. And it cuts across a fundamental value that we aspire to as Americans, which we call equality. Equality is a very tricky and uh, complicated word. Um, we can talk about equality as a condition, um, or equality as an opportunity. Equality as a condition meaning we all have the same conditions, we're all the same. Some, some people interpret equality as we're all the same. Other people would say equality is one of access or opportunity. We all have the same opportunities, even though we're not all the same. And anybody who is involved in kind of contemporary debates today knows that this is a very, very hot topic. Um, what is equality? We have equality under the law is one thing, it's granted to me by my legal environment. Or is equality a human right? Two different things. Do I earn equality, or is it owed to me? Does somebody owe me something? And what if I'm treated unequally? How do I respond? So I'm going to kind of close down that conversation now, except to say that you can see that in our culture, this is a very challenging concept. It's full of foment and tension, and we don't take very naturally to being told that we should be a doulos. And classical Greeks would have kind of shared some of these thoughts. Classical Greek culture at the time abhorred the thought of being a slave. However, the Jewish culture had a far more subtle view of this concept. They had a long tradition. In the Hebrew, the word would be "eved." They have a long tradition of evid, of belonging to God. As Adonai, as Lord. This belonging, this being an evid, was total that's the analogy to Dulos. But it entailed service and worship and stewardship. It was very rich. Some of Israel's most prominent leaders were Evedim. Moses, David, Elijah. All these men were Evedim or slaves of the Lord. The focus was on the completeness of belonging to God and especially. God's worthiness to have such devotion. The framework here is not based on the merits of equality, but rather on the integrity of the relationship with a God like our God. It's just a different framework altogether. It's not even in the same category. So on one hand, we're not talking about freedom versus equality and equal rights and human rights and all of that. We're talking about a beautiful relationship that God has disclosed to his loved, chosen people, the apple of his eye. Within that relationship, Israel The master-slave relationship in the mode of God's relationship with the Jews is of an entirely different kind. And that's why Paul is happy to call himself a doulos of Jesus Christ. So God has created a new culture. God does not create a culture of competition for his attention. He doesn't create a culture of pecking orders or hierarchies that create abuse or manipulation or fear. On the contrary, his lordship and worthiness of total and complete devotion is based on his chesed, the Hebrew word for covenant loyalty, for compassion, for loving kindness, and ultimately on his nature which becomes visible to us, In Jesus, kurios, Lord, and doulos, slave. Philippians 2, he became a slave. So in short, to belong to him as an evid or a doulos, a slave, is the best possible condition a human being can have. There is no better place, no better role, no better situation. I don't often like to quote Sigmund Freud, uh, to put it mildly, but he did say something that I really like. And he said, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. Love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. I could add some things to that, but I do like that idea. I mean, just personally. I want to work and I want to love. There simply is no better context for human flourishing, for love and for work, than within the context of belonging entirely to God and his people as evid, as doulos, where love and work flourish within their proper place. That's why the Bible from start to finish can be so liberal with an otherwise unpalatable word. It's because God is so good. And within the benevolent reign of God, we are loved, we are cared for, we belong, we worship, we serve each other, and we steward his good creation, there is no better place. So in our parable, I don't want us to import into this unnatural expectations. You'll notice here in our parable that we we don't, let's not assume that the doulos is just automatically overworked. Like when I read this parable, my automatic idea is this guy's working till like 8 o'clock at night when the sun goes down. He's dog tired. And this abusive guy tells him, please serve me. And then if you have enough energy to serve yourself before you crawl into your miserable bed, you can do so. You know, I have that kind of tinge in it. But why? Why would I think that? Within this context, Jesus employs a teaching technique, which you'll be familiar with. It's kind of lesser to greater. Imagine this, he says. Imagine that we have a slave. Now, I'm, that's a step up for most of the uh, disciples <laughs> to have a slave. It's like, yeah, I know that's a click up for you guys, but just bear with me. It's a modest environment. There's just one slave. This isn't like a big enterprise. So it's still conceivable. Um, and he says, imagine uh, that you have a slave, um, and uh, this slave is multitasking. Okay, so he's got a lot, of, he does the outside work and the inside work. He's multitasking, but he's not overworking, not as far as I can see. We're not to import into the idea that the text of this service is overworked or abused. On the contrary, the servant in this context derives a great deal of benefit. He's cared for, he's given responsibility, he has a sense of belonging, he knows his value. Slaves were very, very valuable. It's very plausible to think that this guy worked a very reasonable hour would have already understood that part of his natural work day was inside work, and would have taken care of that very happily, and then you know, when he was done with that, cared for himself. There's no reason to think that this was abusive. It's not about the amount of work that was doing. It's about whether he was taking orders, which is very different than abuse. When I my favorite job was working in a bakery, in Lake Forest, a very high-end bakery. a long story how I got there. I loved it. Um, The guy that opened this little shop had been the former uh, head pastry chef for the Four Seasons globally, and he just didn't like traveling anymore. So he opened this little shop with his wife. And uh, I had the uh, happy occasion for nine months of working there, and I loved it. This was not abuse. (laughs) I was not, to put it mildly, overworked. Um, I liked every aspect of the job. Um, and, uh, and oftentimes uh, Gerhard would go home a little earlier because he would get there early, and his wife, who was an accountant, would kind of close up the shop. And sometimes Mary would say, hey, Steve, can you get me a cup of coffee? All right, now, I did not at that moment think, what an abusive, how can she possibly ask that of me? No, I would have said that's totally within the framework of the happy relationship with each have: She, my boss, I, her, worker. All right. In other words, I have to be careful. I think we need to be careful about importing into this something that doesn't belong there. There's no hint that this master is abusing his worker. He's just simply being what is his right, which is he's the boss. And he can tell the worker, please serve me before you serve yourself. That may sound a little tinny in our ears, but it's part of his job description. So the doulos is not, not an equal of the master in condition. He's the doulos. The master is the curios. That's not an equal condition. He's not treated as an equal because he's not an equal. Uh, just to be clear about it. That's what in a certain way what Jesus is getting at that's not unjust it's just the social structure in which these two individuals relate to each other they're equal humans they're just not equal in their condition the master and the servant are both responsible for behavior that is appropriate to their role the master is not to abuse the servant the muse, the, the servant's not to be slack in his service rather the master provides for the servant which was very valuable and very appreciated, and the servant is to serve the master. There is nothing manipulative here, and I think this is the key quality to me that is so deeply meaningful and what Jesus wants to share with his disciples. There is no hint of manipulation, and this is the point. It has to do with this word caris. <laughs> Sorry to throw so much Greek here. I, I, I want to do that because we, we can import false views into the English translations. It's, it's, where, it's where the English says, uh, should the servant expect thanks? I would often, having read this without reflection, would think of that as politeness. When I would bring Mary a cup of coffee, she would say, hey, thanks. All right, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying the master won't, is to be gruff, or dismissive, or impolite. It's very likely that he could have said thank you. In, in ancient Near Eastern culture, grace or charis is almost like a thing. Right? It, 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 it's, the exchange, it's the same word for gift. If you exchange a gift in this context, you're creating a set of obligations, social obligations. Essentially what Jesus is saying here if the servant does his job, is it right for him to expect some sort of obligation? Does he put his master in his debt? That's what's going on here. Okay? That's what this word "caris" is functioning as. Should by doing what he's expected to do, does is the servant owed caris? Does the Master owe the servant cares, simply because the servant is doing what is obliged to be done. Is the servant putting the master in his debt? And the answer is well, no. No more, than, no more than when Mary would say, hey, thanks for that cup of coffee. Somehow now she owes me something. I'm just doing my job. Right, so what Jesus is saying is there's no manipulation going on here. Because if we start playing the charis game, right, then the servant is going to start acting in such a way that he wants to put the master in his debt. Likewise, the master will start putting the servant in his debt. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were using... The people around them, which were their stewards, as a means to an end. That's manipulative. That's abusive. Let's start to bring that into clearer focus. Jesus is saying to the apostles, I do not want you to view other people as a means to an end so that you can get your gold star. And Jesus is just being very clear this is not the way things work in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, when you're out shepherding the sheep, right, which is what this dulos does, and when you're out working in the harvest field, the other thing, plowing, right, you're there as an emissary of the Lord. You're not there to be a little lord, right, and manipulate other people and put me in your debt so that you can self-justify. That's why this is so plain spoken. And I love that. I have been so refreshed just in studying this passage by the sense that this is just so crystal clear. I do not have to justify myself. That's the positive way of putting this. You do not have to justify yourself we're not even playing that self-justification game. And that's what he wants the disciples to know. In distinction to the Pharisees, yeah, particularly the ones who were misbehaving, because there are good Pharisees too, all right, Jesus says we're not even in the same ballpark. And this is the gospel. The gospel is is that all the self-justifying that needs to be done has been done on the cross, there just isn't any need for us to manipulate the gods. We don't sacrifice to the gods so that we get in good with them. We don't make wishes. We don't have superstitions. We don't cross ourselves because somehow we're going to, you know, ward off the vampires. We're crossing ourselves because we're reminding ourselves that the cross of Jesus Christ justifies us. I am, as a doulos, completely and entirely free. In fact, I've heard some people say about this parable, you know, what Jesus is saying, it's not about you, it's about God. I don't like that. I don't like that because I think it doesn't reflect well on God or us. I don't think God is cheeky that way. I don't think God says it's not about you. I think that comes out of a false note. Remember, we're like the sheep whom the shepherd left all the others to go and find and pull us out of a ditch. Each one of us matters very deeply to God. Now, I want to address this word worthy. We are very worthy. Slaves and servants were actually very valuable to the masters, and they knew their worth. So when Jesus says, I want you to say we are unworthy servants, I don't want you to hear that in a psychological way. We're not to say of ourselves, I myself, Steve Engstrom, I am unworthy. Not in that fundamental sense. Okay, this is a tricky concept here, so I want to make sure we get this straight. We are loved. We have incredible work. Jesus came. so loved the world that he gave his only son to mash scriptures here to become the form of a doulos, a slave on our behalf. So, in that sense, we are not to say we are unworthy. However, we are unworthy when it comes down to some self-justifying maneuver that somehow we have earned the right to God's grace, that somehow he uh, 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 that's the that's the false stuff all right it's okay for us to say we're unworthy servants in the sense that we're not putting God in our debt it's a different cultural framework Right, so we have to pay very close attention because in our culture, when we hear the word, you're unworthy, we hear it very deeply in our core. And that's why I think we need to be very careful of saying that's not what Jesus' intent here isn't to say that you as a person have no worth. You actually have a great deal of worth, but not in this other sense of putting me in, in, in your debt or of playing the self-justifying game, or looking for the gold star, or seeking some kind of remuneration for what just belongs to you just by my gift. God has given us, he's conferred on us everything that we need. And and this way, Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter five, uh, verses one, and then I'm gonna cut over to verse 13. For freedom, Christ has set us free, right? This is the guy that said he's the doulos of Christ. He loves talking about freedom, not being contradictory. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in your freedom, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This, is this contrasting to Jesus? No. Then he goes on to say, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall, love the Lord, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul loves playing with the contrasting features of doulos and freedom and service. There is deep, deep joy to be found in having the authority and confidence to do the work that God has given us to do because we don't have to worry about justifying ourselves. And I'm drawing to an end here. We don't have to play games with God or with others. We don't have to wonder where we belong or if we belong. We don't have to be suspicious of God's motives. We don't have to hide our motives. Jesus says, look, go, do your ministry. Go out and feed my lambs. Work in the harvest field. Worship, serve, be together, all is well. This is actually everything that we could want to love, to work, to belong, to serve, to steward, to shepherd, to plow, to worship God, to eat. We want this because God is that good. Because to do and be his doulos is to be held by that kind of love and freed from every other sort of bondage and slavery. We want this. We want this because it means that our labor is not in vain, our daily lives matter, our work is transformed in the kingdom ministry no matter what kind of work it is. We want to do this because we get to work with God, on behalf of God, in the presence of God. We want this because we have just a hint that the meal we have at the end of the day is a foretaste of the banquet we'll enjoy at God's own table when our ministry here is done. I don't want some part of me to be outside of God. It doesn't offend me to think of being owned by him. It means I'm valuable, I've been bought with a price. I'm glad I don't have to justify myself and put God in my debt. Jesus justifies me, and he will justify me on the day of judgment. I'm glad I know where I belong and who I belong to. I'm glad I've been given work to do with the people that God has put in my life with creativity and energy and skill that he's given me. I'm glad that he values me and somehow invites me to be an active participant. I'm glad that I don't have to figure out everything in my life that hasn't worked out like I thought because I don't have that sort of perspective he does. I'm glad that he isn't manipulating me or keeping secrets with me or fooling around. I'm glad that I don't have to acquire everything I need but he provides everything I need I'm glad that he's trustworthy and good. And I don't mind saying that I'm unworthy in that respect, because I'm not. In comparison to the depth of God's goodness, I am shallow and sinful. But though I am, and though you are, he loves us nonetheless and has made our unworthiness and sin simply a feature in the testimony of his saving grace and magnificence. So let's step into that framework. He the master, we the servants. He the teacher, we the disciples, let's put our trust in God's good character. Let's acknowledge that he's not in debt to us, that he's given us everything we need. Let's embrace the labor, the stewardship, the service. Let's be shepherds. Let's go out into the harvest field, which is plentiful in the laborer's few. Amen.